You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. That's step one. I was informed of the product. Right, right away, right? The, the company, New Era, so New Era is, has an exclusive, exclusive rights to hats on the field with MLB. So they make everything. They knew exactly what they were doing, right? Step one, inform me of the product. Step two, persuasion. I immediately pulled out my phone and I Googled Father's Day 2023 hat, Red Sox, and I read this on New Era's website. Celebrate this special day with the Boston Red Sox by grabbing this 2023 MLB Father's Day adjustable hat. It's blue underbill and classic Boston Red Sox graphics make it a standout addition to your fan gear collection. So that's good, right? And then, to my surprise, I was offered a 10% coupon for this thing, right? I was in, by the way. I was in before we even got to the website. But what are they doing? They're, they're persuading me. I read that and I thought, you know what? You're right, New Era. It would be a standout addition to my fan gear. You know, I've got nine hats already, but a tenth would be great. So I bought the hat. Came yesterday. It's awesome. I was tempted to wear it, but I, I'll show you later. Then, of course, just in case I, step three, just in case I didn't buy it, I don't normally buy from New Era, I'm a 47 guy, but anyways, uh, all week, the algorithms on my phone, the emails, I've been getting emails from New Era to remind me how great their product is, right? Inform, persuade, remind. Now, as we, as we come to Psalm 19 this, this morning, the psalm is written by King David. He's not an advertising guru. He was a shepherd warrior king. But maybe you heard it when, when, when we read. He's actually on a very similar mission in this psalm. He, he is trying to inform and persuade and remind the reader of something extremely, extremely important what he's doing in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a psalm of praise. Last week, we, we kicked off our summer in the psalm series with Psalm 1. That was a, a psalm of teaching or, or wisdom. So Psalm 1, if you remember, if you were here, you can go back and read it. If not, it reads more like a proverb. It's teaching you how to live wisely. But Psalm 19 is a praise psalm. As you read it, you get this sense of overflow from, from King David. It's this poetic overflow of, of worship. And by writing this, what, what King David is doing, he's sort of lovingly trying to grab our attention and say, listen, you must look at this. You must look at this glorious God. You need this glorious God. Don't forget this glorious God. That's what David is doing in Psalm 19, and it's helpful for us because I think this is true of every generation, but especially us today in our culture. We're very, we're very distracted people, all of us. There's so much going on that it's so easy for us to lose sight of the glory of God that is on display in the things that are right in front of us, namely His creation and His Word. And so we miss the opportunity to, to worship and exult and delight in this glorious God. And so Psalm 19, in a sense, 
is a, is a wake-up call for us. It's informing us of the glory of God, persuading us, reminding us of how much we need this. So in a, in a sentence, we could say this. Psalm 19 calls us to see God's glory in both creation and in Scripture and to humbly respond to such glory. That's what the psalm is calling us to do. We're, we're called to do three things. If you're taking notes, here's where we're headed. Number one, look up and see the glory of God in creation. See that in verses 1 through 6. Number two, look down and see the glory of God in His Word, verses 7 through 11. And then number three, look in and respond to God's glory. Look up, look down, and look in. So number one, look up and see God's glory in creation. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You hear what David's doing? He's personifying creation. You hear that? God's created world, David tells us, is like a, is like a preacher with a sermon or, or a singer with a, a song to sing. And the, the primary chorus of that song or the, the, the primary point of that sermon is this, God is glorious. That's the message that creation is giving. And this is, I think this is so important for us because there's a lot of theology in, in any text, but especially in, in, in Psalm 19, and we're going to draw some of that out. But, but notice he's not writing this as a mere intellectual exercise. This is an overflow of praise for King David. This is from a man who has been outside and he's looked up and he's seen the sunrise, and he's seen the sunset, and you know, maybe he's peered, peered outside out of Jerusalem at night, and he's seen billions and billions of stars in the desert sky, or he's reflected on his, his days as a young shepherd on a hilltop with the vastness of the sky around him, and his conclusion is, as he sees all of those things in creation, that they are telling us that God is glorious. That's the message behind them. Now, glory is one of those hard words. I, I tried. I don't think I did a good job in the kids' catechism a few weeks ago to try and explain glory to small children. It's really hard. It's one of those things that's actually, instead of trying to define it, though we will in a moment, it's probably something you can point to an experience of it, right? One of those things easier experienced than defined. I, I remember the first time I ever went to the Grand Canyon in person. How many of you have been to the, the Grand Canyon? Okay, maybe you know what I'm talking about. I was a teenager, and I was with my mom on a family trip, single mom, only child, so that's a, that's a family trip, the two of us, and I remember being, being really annoyed and teenagerly that we were having to get up early at my uncle's house and then drive out to see this big hole in the ground. I'm like, we got holes in the ground back home. I know it's a big hole, but a hole's a hole, right? Can't be that impressive. That's my perspective going out to this. I remember sort of moping around and rolling my eyes and just grumbling as, as I walked from the parking lot to, to the ledge to see this canyon. And then, like, peering in, and I wasn't even close to the edge, but there's a sense of like, oh my goodness, I'm going to fall in. But just being overwhelmed in awe by the vastness of this canyon. It, it, just, it just sort of stopped me in my, my tracks. It, it, it sort of transported me in an instant out of this like myopic teenagerly existence of being 
you know, self-centered and just grumbling, and then just being amazed at this. It was glorious. What was I doing in that moment? I was experiencing something glorious. And, And David tells us here, all of that whether it's the sky above or the canyons below or, or the immense oceans, all of it tells of God's glory, right? something you can point to and experience. Uh, but as we're talking about the glory of God specifically, I think it is helpful to, to try and give a, a definition. And so I, w- I would say it this way, the glory of God is His perfect character on display. So the holiness of God is the total of who He is. That's His character. The glory of God is like the amplifier that takes that character and puts it on display for others. So, creation is declaring this about God. Declaring that God is unique in perfection and wonder and awe. There is no one like Him. We are supposed to look at the sky and that's supposed to be our conclusion. Think of our own galaxy, right? The Milky Way. Our our sun is one of 200 billion stars that comprise our universe. Our galaxy is approximately 100,000 light years across. So to give you some perspective, light can travel. Just bear with me for a second. A lot of numbers coming. Light can travel at 186,000 miles per second or 670 million miles per Per hour. So from that we can calculate that in a year's time, light can travel just short of six trillion miles. So if the Milky Way is a hundred thousand light years in diameter, that's six hundred quadrillion miles. That's the vastness of our universe. God is glorious. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. I didn't even know quadrillion was a real number till I read that this week. David goes on, still in verse 1, to tell us that the reason this declares God's glory is because it is His handiwork. That word handiwork, in the second part of verse 1 in the ESV, is important because what is he saying? He's saying all of this beautiful work of art points to an artist. So you look at a building and you say an architect designed that and people built that. You look at a you, you look at a painting and say, an artist painted that. So how is all of this beauty here? There must have been an artist. There must have been a designer behind this perfectly designed universe. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he says, what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking to to those who don't believe in God, but he's really talking to all of us. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See, this is, this is why the Bible's estimation, God's estimation of atheism is that it's foolishness. That's what God says. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Because calling all of God's handiwork 
an accident or a, a mere product of chance is like, it's the equivalent of saying like the Mona Lisa was a paint spill. Right? It, it doesn't make sense. Heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. And notice, David goes on, right? God didn't just create long ago and then sort of step away from His creation. His handiwork is continually declaring this glory. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. That phrase pours out literally means bubble up and over like an irrepressible mountain spring. That's what each day is doing. So we get this picture here of night and day, sort of like singing this continual worship hymn duet to each other. And it's something that everyone hears. All of creation sees this display. Verses 3 and 4. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And in the end of verse 6, there is nothing hidden from the sun's heat. All of this glory is on display for all to see. And what David's doing here is something so simple. He's just relishing in the monotony of a new day. You notice that? He's just talking about a new day. The sun rises and sets. Now, I don't know about you, but my tendency is to look at the next day and go, all right, time to pull out the Google calendar. Where do I got to be? Who do I have to call? What email do I need to send? What meeting do I need to have? That, that's, that's my default on how I, I look at a day coming and going. I think it's probably true of, of most of us. We call it the daily grind, something we're all, all a part of. Right? See, life can easily feel like this monotonous routine. And David is, it's like David is saying to us, listen, don't miss this. In the simplicity of a new day, we see the proclamation of God's incredible handiwork in creation. Don't miss it. G.K. Chesterton writes about this. This is a long quote, but I think it's so helpful. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in, in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. <laughs> Parents are like, amen. Right? For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. I love that. Right? Rejoicing in the monotony of new days. He goes on. If you look at verse 5, He gives this other image that gets at this. He talks about the sun rising, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a, sun, a strong man runs its course with joy. You see, the image there is that something is joyfully given in creation when we see the glory of God behind it. If, if you know the Creator, something as common as the sun rising can bring you joy. I think there's just a simple application for all of us here. Go outside and look up. Right? 
For David, this was a soul-nourishing reality, it seems like. He's he's rejoicing this in ways that might seem strange to us. It's like, guy, it's just a new day. But he's relishing in God's glory. And I, I wonder, I wonder how much of our spiritual weariness or selfishness or even some of our anxiety would be abated, not, not totally cured, but abated if we would just listen to creation sermon of the glory of God. We just get outside of ourselves, get outside of our houses and go and take in and make the connection that a glorious God created all of this. Now, I'm preaching to myself more than anyone here. I'm a very bookish person. I'm what you would call an avid indoorsman. You know, when people say that, I'm an avid outdoorsman. Okay, I'm an avid indoorsman, right? I need to put the books down. I need to go outside and see what's written in creation. Now, what David is describing here in these first few verses is what theologians call general revelation, okay? God generally being revealed. That's the theological term for it, and it refers to the truth that has been revealed about God and by God in nature, Okay? You can look to nature and see the glory of God. And it's good, but it's not enough for us to know the God behind it all. Some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, I can stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, man, God is glorious. But someone can stand right next to me and say, man, this is amazing, but God's not real. What's the difference? Well, God's general revelation is not enough for us to know God, to know how to have a relationship with that God and to know salvation through Jesus Christ. We need something more than general revelation. We need what's called special revelation. And that leads us to number two. So if we look up and see the glory of God in creation, it's general revelation. Number two, we look down and see the glory of God in the Word. That's special, God's special revelation. Him telling us who He is. Verse 7 says, the law of the Lord. So notice the shift there. He's looking up and now He's going to turn from creation to God's Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. David wrote this intentionally that way. He's sort of just like hitting us over and over and over again with what God's Word is so that we would be overwhelmed by it. Now, he uses five terms here for God's Word. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, and rules. And taken together, though there's nuance in in each of those, taken together, they're all referring to God's Word spoken to His people and written down. We talked a little bit about this last week. We looked at the the phrase, the law, in Psalm 1. We can rightly say that the, the Scripture that we hold in our hands, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is God's Word. But He also gives us characteristics, right? He says it's perfect, verse 7 meaning it is the fullness of God's Word. It lacks nothing. There is no error in it. It's sure, verse 7, meaning it's proven to be applicable and relevant for our lives and for the lives of all who receive it. God's Word is right and righteous, verses 8 and 9. It reveals God's righteous character to us so that we too can pursue righteousness. It's pure and it's radiant, verse 8. It shines God's truth into darkness. 
And according to David, it is far more valuable than all of the world's riches and the choicest of foods. Verse 10. If you're thinking of one verse to meditate on this week, this might be it. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. He's saying, I'd rather have the Word of God than all of the riches this world has to offer. All of the choicest foods that you can offer me, I would much rather have God speaking to me. He doesn't just tell us what the Word is, He also tells us what the Word does. And now we're zooming through this, we can spend weeks in this, but listen, the Word revives the soul, verse 7, meaning it awakens you and I to desire God and His ways afresh. When our souls are weary and Maybe we feel spiritually stuck or discouraged. We need God to speak into our hearts and awaken us. That's what God's Word does. It makes us wise, verse 7. It takes naturally foolish and undiscerning people, which is all of us by nature, and it teaches us God's ways. If you want to be wise, you want to be discerning, be a person who's constantly reading and studying and meditating on and applying the Scriptures. It also rejoices the heart. It's not a mere intellectual exercise brings joy to us. Right? We live in a fallen world that is constantly kicking us down. Right? We come into this room every Sunday with, with a spiritual limp, if we're honest, right? Yet God gives us His Word like medicine, brings healing, brings joy to us, and it enlightens our eyes. Verse 8, it awakens us to the light of God's truth versus the darkness of the world's lies. And it brings us to a healthy fear of God, verse 9. I think that word fear is an important one. It doesn't mean to be scared of God, though we should tremble at the holiness of God as sinners. But it means to approach the Lord with a sense of reverential awe and trembling as you consider His holiness in your unworthiness. To, to fear Him is to love Him because you see not only a holy God, but you see a gracious and merciful God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what it means to fear the Lord. We see also in verse 11 that this word warns us of what will happen if we ignore God's word. And it rewards us for keeping the statues of His word. Now I know that's a lot, but listen, how does the word of God do all of this? Here's the way. Here's the, here's the apex of God's special revelation. The Word of God does this by pointing us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true glory revealed. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul tells Timothy, the sacred writings are able to make... By the way, sacred writings is Old Testament. He's saying as you read the Old Testament... They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in the Old Testament. Points you to Jesus. We, we read of Jesus teaching on the road to Emmaus. That's where we get our name for a church. Seven-mile road. The road to Emmaus was seven miles long. After his resurrection, Jesus, you know, he's disguising himself. The discouraged disciples don't know it's him yet. He opens up the word to them, Luke 24 through 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
That was probably the greatest sermon ever preached, by the way. Christ preaching a Christ-centered sermon. Or think of it this way. As John says of Jesus in John 1.14, And the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. As of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 12, Jesus speaks of the hour of His death on the cross as the hour that has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what we're doing is we're tracing this glory theme. David's saying it's in creation. Generally, it's, it's revealed specially in His Word. And when you come to His Word, you follow this theme and you see that the fullness of God's glory is displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. And you're like, how do we get there? How do we get from billions of stars to the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, friends, the cross is the greatest display of God's glory because it shows us the character of God. Remember our definition of glory? It is the holiness of God on display. The cross shows us the character of God in perfection. In His love... He gave His only Son that we who believe may have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. In His justice and holiness, He punished sin. In His power, He defeated Satan's sin and death and rose Christ from the dead. The cross and empty grave is the perfect display of the glory of God. John Calvin says, From nature, we only know the hands and feet of God, but from Scripture we may know His very heart. Why? Because the Scriptures give us Jesus. Friends, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament tell us a lot, but primarily their purpose is to reveal to us the person and work of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. General revelation shows us the glory of God in creation. Special revelation reveals to us the gospel of God in Scripture so that we can glory in all of those things around us. Now, that's a lot. And so I, I want to try and do something and just take in, okay, how do we think about the Bible maybe in a memorable way? Okay, and there's something that theologians have, have done. I don't know who came up with this, but as we think of the Scripture, there's a, an, an acronym that is really helpful, SCAN, S-C-A-N, okay? Four characteristics of Scripture. So you're like, I just I read Psalm 19. There's a lot there. That's good. But what's a sort of summative way to think of it all? The Scripture is sufficient. It is clear. It is authoritative. And it is necessary. Okay? First, the Word of God is sufficient, meaning it's not incomplete. God's Word is enough. All we need for salvation and godly living is given to us in God's Word. We need no additional words beyond the sufficient Word in Scriptures to know God. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. Does God's Word help me be an engineer? Well, no, it's not going to teach you how to be an engineer or a plumber or, or, or any of those things, but it's going to teach you how to be a godly one who knows Christ and glorifies Him, right? That's what sufficiency means. So it's sufficient. It's also clear. It's number two, S-C, clear not inaccessible. Now, I know there are hard parts of the Bible to understand. That's not what clarity means. There are difficult things to, to wrestle with, but 
the core truths of the gospel, the core truths of God's word, the saving message of Christ is clearly taught in the scriptures and can be understood by anyone. God's word is understandable. Don't let anybody tell you you need a, a degree to understand the Bible or that you need a priest to understand the Bible or you need a church council to understand the Bible. God's word is clear to us on these issues. Number three, authoritative. That's the A. Not merely informative. This might be the biggest one for our culture today. It is not enough to say the Bible has some interesting things in it. The Bible has some good life lessons. No. Scripture has the last word as the final authority from God because it is God's word. Additional teachings, human experience, of, of any individuals or of church councils, they do not take precedence over Scripture. They can be helpful as much as they align with Scripture, but they don't have any authority over God's Word. Scripture is authoritative. And then lastly, Scripture is necessary, not optional. General revelation of God and creation, though important, isn't enough to save us. We can't know God savingly by means of personal experience and human reason. We need God's Word to tell us who Christ is, to tell us to believe in Him, to tell us who the artist is behind all of this beautiful handiwork and to be saved. God's Word is necessary, okay? Four things. Sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary. Tell a friend about that this week. You learned something helpful. Okay. Now, this is an incredible thing God's given to us. And, and here's the simple question I have for myself and for you. Do you cherish God's Word? That's it. I mean, do, do you... Can you say with David that you would rather have God's Word? Like if you had to choose, I'm not saying we have to choose, but, but if you had to choose, you'd rather have God's Word, God speaking to you in the Scriptures more than all of the world's riches. See, our, our culture has more easy access to the glory of Jesus in the Word than any other time in culture before. It's amazing what you can get on your phone Scripture, translations, commentaries, are we taking advantage of it? But not just that. It's not just an exhortation to come to your Bibles often, but come to your Bibles with expectation that you're going to meet the God of glory in the Scriptures. Right? Pray like Moses did when you open your Bible. God, show me your glory. Charles Spurgeon talks about this. He says, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I've seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the Word of the Lord. Not crawl over the surface, but eat right into it till we've taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts. But it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language. And your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. And Spurgeon goes on to give an example. He says, I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. John Bunyan was a famous author, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. He says, read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. 
And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend this example to you, beloved. Friends, let us not only look up and see the glory of God in creation, but look down and see the glory of God in the word till it transforms us. And then third and finally, look in and respond to God's glory. So thus far, David's, he's acknowledged God's glory in creation, right? and, and he's also acknowledged it in the Word, which reveals Christ to us, and without this spe- special revelation, we can't know who that God is behind creation. And then he responds at the end of the psalm uh, to such glory with a prayer. That's what 12 through 14 is. Verse 12, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, so that the, the The his here in verse 12 is the the servant of verse 11. And here's what he's saying. See, we don't always understand right from wrong. We can't always discern our own errors. We don't have moral clarity on our own. How can we be godly unless we have help to discern the error? He's praying for God to do that in his own life. He's saying, that's what God's word does for me. God, would you do it again so I can pursue a life of, of godliness, right? Hebrews 4 puts it this way. He says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, so, so David knows, right? If he, if he truly confronts the glory of God, he sees it. He knows there's something in him that needs to be done. So he prays this prayer. Surgery is painful, Right? But it's worth it if it cuts the cancer away. Shining a, a flashlight under the couch at my house reveals a lot of mess, but it's necessary if you want to clean that area. Likewise, David is acknowledging the glory of God cuts him open, reveals his own sin, and exposes him that he might receive the grace of God. He says in verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults. He's saying, Lord, I know that there are hidden things in my life. I I need you through your word to reveal these things. For you're a merciful God who forgives iniquity. That's what the prayer is there. Friends, the call is to let glory expose our lack of glory. Our sinfulness before a glorious God. And this this is meant to be encouraging to us because the reality is this. Each of us, we're actually far worse sinners than we could ever imagine. If we're just honest with ourselves, if God really exposes what's going on in our hearts, we have thoughts and intentions that we don't even realize that are offensive to God. David knows that, but he doesn't despair at that. He doesn't say, God is glorious, I can't handle that. No, what does he do? He brings that reality to the Lord. He brings his sinfulness to God. And you you and I should do the same. Why? Because while we're worse sinners than we could ever imagine, God, the glorious God, is more merciful and gracious and forgiving than we could ever dare to dream. That's why David doesn't see the glory of God and run. He sees the glory of God, his own sinfulness, and he's drawn to God because he knows my sins are many, but his mercy is more for me. 
draws him to God. And friends, that's the, that's the place where godliness will begin to grow for you and I. When we look up and see the glory of God in creation, we look down and see it in the Word, we then look in and see our own sinfulness and need of His grace, but we know God will forgive us if we confess our sins to Him. Then he moves on, verse 13, to another request. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So he's not only saying, listen, I have things deep inside. Lord, search me, reveal these hidden things. He's also saying, I have presumptuous sins. There's there's outward sins as well. And there's a progression here. If you let the hidden sins fester, they're going to become outward presumptuous sins. David's saying, keep me from those. If you let bitterness fester in your heart, it will grow into a life marked by outward anger. You can't keep it inside. If you, if you let lust conquer your inner life, it will, it will grow outward into to sensual sin. Right? If you let pride in relationships internally, just it will eventually grow out and you'll be defined by self-exaltation that will alienate you from others. So David, is, this, is, this is a holistic prayer here, right? Lord, help me to comprehend your glory so that I would be transformed. Right? And he says in verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David is saying, only you can transform my inward life my hidden faults, that only you can transform my outward actions, my presumptuous sins, in the words of my mouth. So I'm a sinner as I stand before your glory, but God, you are a gracious God. And the answer to David's prayer, and the answer for you and I when we pray verses 12 through 14, which I encourage you to do, is found in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Who else can declare you innocent from hidden faults? Can you declare yourself innocent? No. God declares us innocent. God justifies us through Jesus Christ, Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That word justification means to be declared innocent. Who else can hold us back from sin. It's Jesus. Romans 6, verse 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because of Christ, I'm not ensla- I don't have to choose sin anymore. Who, who else is our rock and our redeemer? Jesus Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So friends, let me just, as we close, let me give you some application for this week for you. First, practice seeing the glory of God in creation. Like intentionally put it on your calendar to start cultivating this habit. When you see a sunset, when you, when you hear a child's laugh or maybe you, know, you smell the steak on the grill, whatever it is in this created world, I want you to think of that thing and then add the phrase, declares the glory of God to it in your mind. It's going to be helpful to you. It might sound weird at first, right? This stake declares the glory of God, right? But it's true. My coworker, someone made in the image of God, created by God, declares the glory of God. 
The laughter of my spouse declares the glory of God. The grass beneath my feet declares the glory of God. I heard a well-known pastor on a panel at a conference one time, I kid you not, for five minutes talking about the glory of God in the bubbles in his Diet Coke. And at first I thought, like at the beginning, I'm like, this guy's insane. He's just, there's a few screws loose. If I told you who it was, you laugh. And then by the end, I'm like, he's right. That's amazing. Millions of little bubbles, right? The bubbles in your Diet Coke declare the glory of God. What are you doing? You're training yourself to see the beauty of God in creation. And you're steering your heart to worship. Second, then, from that experience, look into the scriptures for understanding of what you see. You see, the practice of, if you're looking at creation all all the time, you're not only going to see the glorious things, which scripture will tell you about, but guess what? You're also going to see the broken things. You're going to see the lack of glory in this fallen world. And as you look to the scriptures, you're going to be pointing to the gospel. And you're going to get the explanation for what went wrong. And you're going to get the answer for what makes it right, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then third and finally, very simple, respond to such glory with humble and repentant faith. It's true for all of us. That might sound like something just for an unbeliever. Repent and believe the gospel. Gospel is for Christians as well. Maybe you're here for the first time and you're saying, I don't believe in all this Christianity stuff. Let me encourage you. Follow this pattern. Consider the glory of God in creation. Open up the scripture. Someone here would love to read the Bible with you regularly. And then repent and believe the gospel. But for those of you who have walked with Christ for years, and maybe you just feel stuck and dull and you're not glorying in the monotony, Practice this and let it lead you to repentance and faith in Christ who will bring you joy and refreshing so that you can delight in His glory revealed.